So this evening, I wanted to continue an exploration that I began uh, last time, which was to explore the nature of the self and to explore what is meant by this teaching of not-self or going beyond the ordinary construction of self. And it's a very fundamental area uh, and can be a very confusing area. That often, especially when we, we get conceptual about the nature of the self and not-self, it can be highly confusing. And I'll just briefly mention some of the roots of that confusion. I talked about some of that last time. Uh, what I want to do today is to go a little further from last time and particularly focus on two areas, which I think uh, offer uh, a practical way, really, to explore this sometimes uh, confusing teaching. And the first way is to really study how the self becomes what we might call thick. How we have a, a strong sense of self. And to look at that in meditation, in the flow of daily life, and to get to know it well, and to understand some of the sources of that uh, thick sense of self. And as I think that thick sense of self, which is taken to be uh, problematic, and I'll, I'll say more what I mean, I mean by that. Uh, and it's really the part of the uh, intention of the teaching is to be able to uh, clarify when the self gets thick and in a way uh, distorts our experience, leads us to have a more self-centered approach, and can be uh, seen as connected uh, with different kinds of difficulty or even suffering. So that's the first area is to explore in more depth what we mean by the self and how it appears in our experience. And the second area is to explore in more depth how we go beyond that thick sense of self in meditation and in daily life. And to see... Um, a number of ways that we might uh, do that in our own experience, in our own practice. And we can also see that the deeper meaning of the teaching is to point to how some of our most uh, beautiful qualities, such as love, a sense of interconnection, maybe a sense of community, a sense of unity with life, with the earth, with the natural world, uh, all are varieties, we might say, of experience beyond the thick self, the thick sense of self. So those are the two areas I want to explore. I thought it'd be good initially just to do a little bit of review and to talk about why this is both an important topic and why it's often confusing. Um, I mentioned last time that when we look at really the aims of our mindfulness or insight practice, they're often characterized in terms of insight into impermanence, insight into suffering, and insight into uh, not-self, or insight into self and not-self. And those are really the uh, areas where we try where we practice in order to have insight. In other words, those three areas are taken as particularly crucial for liberation. Especially we want to see more deeply into impermanence because if we saw more clearly how everything was always changing and how we ourselves are impermanent, we might have a different sense of priorities and we might value more deeply developing this uh, beautiful heart and having the mind be clear. And we wouldn't grasp on to transient experiences quite so much. That's what the aim is. That's why impermanence is so central. And of course, the teaching about suffering and the roots of suffering is uh, right at the heart of the Buddha's message. You know, that's, that's the focus for probably what are really the two core teachings of the whole tradition, which are the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, 
and the teaching of dependent origination, which is a more elaborate version of that, which is about what are the, what's the nature of suffering and what are the roots of suffering. And again, it's understanding suffering not as the presence of uh, the unpleasant or the difficult or the painful, but more the reaction. And you know I, this teaching that I think expresses it so beautifully uh, that I uh, offer in uh, a lot of the times that I teach is the teaching of the two arrows, which is so, so direct. It says, it, it really comes from the Buddha asking a question. Everyone experiences some pain. How does a non-practitioner differ from a practitioner? The answer is in this very simple teaching of the two arrows, which is, I think, the mo- the actually the quickest way that he expresses the core of the teachings. And it's maybe one of the most successful ways. And he says that a, uh, everyone has a certain amount of unpleasant experiences. We have physical pain at times. We have illness at times. Our bodies are soft and vulnerable. We, have, uh, uh, we get old. We eventually die. All of those have their unpleasant aspects. And uh, we have emotional pain at times. We all have difficult interactions. We have things that happen that uh, lead to sadness or anger or fear or despair, uh, confusion and so forth. We all have a certain amount of emotional pain. And we also sometimes are not treated fairly. We're not treated with uh, justice. And we, uh, that happens at times. And it's part of human life. And we all have a certain measure of the unpleasant, some more than others. And the Buddha says that everyone shares this. And so there's no differentiation in terms of the non-practitioner and the practitioner in terms of that fact. Where the difference occurs, so the teaching goes, is that the uh, non-practitioner, because of the presence of pain, which the Buddha says can be called the first arrow. It's as if we are all shot by an arrow, shot by the first arrow, which is the arrow of pain. We have a certain amount of that at times. He says that because of the first arrow, the non-practitioner tends to shoot a second arrow as if that would help. And so with physical pain, we contract, right? We contract, we tense, We don't want to experience it. And it's not surprising that one of the main early applications of meditation was in the medical field where patients with chronic pain learned not to shoot the second arrow. They learned to be with the unpleasant, thereby, according to doctors, reducing as much as 80 or 90% of the actual pain. Because what we'll see is that most of our pain is actually in the second arrow. Part of what we learn is just to be with the first arrow. So we could see how that manifests at the level of pain. We shoot a second arrow emotionally, very easy to see. I have a difficult emotion, and I proliferate reactions. I blame myself, I blame others. I get in a three-hour or three-day or three-month or three-year funk because of the proliferation. We all know that. That happens. That's shooting the second arrow. Or I may be treated unfairly, unjustly, and I react, blame others, maybe treat them unfairly. I've been treated bad at work, unfairly. I take it out when I come home on my family. Very, very common. That is all shooting the second arrow. And the Buddha says what the practitioner learns to do is not to shoot the second arrow. So we learn how to be with the unpleasant and learn to watch our reactions and learn increasingly how not to react with the unpleasant, but just to be with it. Also, responding skillfully doesn't mean to be a masochist, but it means that, that we have worked with the reaction. Same thing emotionally. We, you know, one of the great fruits of our practice is we learn how to be with uh, emotional pain, study it, and we learn to cut the trail of proliferation. You know, we can do that also in terms of justice, 
issues, fairness issues, uh, I tend to interpret the nonviolent approach of King and Gandhi as exactly learning not to shoot the second arrow. We have received pain and oppression. We don't pass it on. We cut the cycle of reactions here. So very powerful teaching. That's the teaching of, uh, essentially, the teaching of suffering because the first arrow is pain and the second arrow is suffering. It's a way to understand what suffering means. So suffering isn't the same as pain. In this sense, it has a technical meaning, which is to uh, really see it as identical with reactivity. And actually, it's reactivity not just against the unpleasant, but for the pleasant, grasping after the pleasant. So, and then the third area of insight is the area of uh, looking into self and not self. And what we can see as we look is how all these three are related. That actually, as we see, as we'll look further into self and not self, we'll, and I think this is no surprise, when the self gets very thick, suffering is not far away. <laughs> I think we all know that, right? Uh, when the self gets very thick, particularly with difficult things, the uh, suffering is not far away. And so uh, as we look further into suffer, self and not self, we want to keep coming back to how does that connect with the issue of pain and suffering. So I mentioned last time that, the, that self and not self is very confusing, can be very confusing, that uh, people often take it in a conceptual way. And I, I want to try to have it be really practically grounded, but it's a con- very uh, confusing topic because... We may think that uh, the presence of a self is the most obvious thing that there is. And what's wrong with a self? And don't we have to develop a good sense of self? And what's going on? And what does the Buddha mean by this? And, you know, and Western psychologists talk about the value of a self. And, you know, and what's going on? And it's very confusing. And Western psychologists use the word ego in one way. And Buddhists use it another way. And, you know, and... Um, can get very confusing. I heard a story uh, of a young man in the Midwest who went to a um, retreat and it was taught in that retreat that there's no self, which I think is a misunderstanding because the word anatta should be translated as not self. It's basically not, uh, it's, uh, the Buddha is saying there isn't a, an independent, separate self. Um, and this young man heard it as no self, and he was very confused, and he said, if there's no self, why should I go to college? And he was actually in anguish for the better part of a year. He dropped out of college, and he was almost paralyzed because he said, if there's no self, what do I do? Right? And so it can be a very difficult, confusing area. The language can get very confusing and so forth. And Um, I think what's important is to see that what's being pointed to is, and I think where the focus of our practice should be, is especially on seeing when the self gets very thick and what are the sources of that and when do we go beyond that thick sense of self. And the uh, teaching is not that there's no individuality. It's not that we don't have individual beings. I'm sorry, my English teacher is on my right corner. She just noticed a double negative, so sorry about that. <laughs> Her name is Miss Baker. <laughs> and she, I haven't tracked her since high school. She probably like, died a really long time ago, but she's very much alive on my right shoulder. So, okay, so anyway, uh, but you got what I meant. And, um, and so... There can be a sense of individuality, but what we're looking for is when the sense of self gets really thick, so it leads to a sense of being totally separate, independent, self-centered. That's what's being pointed to as the problem and where it's connected with suffering. So a little more depth on how the self appears um, and where it gets thick. You know, One of the ways that it gets thick is when we develop a certain self-image can be a self-image about what we do, about our role in society, the role that I have, my 
sense of being this or that quality, could be related to gender, sexual orientation, all sorts of things. I may have a very thick sense of self around being this or that. You know, it can be, uh, it can be positive or negative. You know, I can have, you know, people, you know, I think it's especially rough as a teenager. You know, I was thinking that uh, almost all teenagers think that some part of their bodies are really off. Did anyone not experience that as a teenager? I know for me, it's like my, I thought my neck was too long, my ears were too big. I mean, my feet were too big. And so there's still a residue. If, I mean, people don't ask me my shoe size much these days, but I still notice there's a little residue from being a teenager about my shoe size, because when I was a teenager, I would always, um, I was really happy when I, found like a shoe company that actually had um, shoe sizes that were like half a size lower than the other companies. And I was able to say, I wear size 11 rather than 11 and a half. So in any case, there's, so what we do often is that we, there's some part of our experience and we kind of grab hold of it either positively or negatively. So I had a self-image as someone with big feet. Donald the Bigfoot. <laughs> the big-footed one. You know, we all have something like this. I am, you know, and it can be, again, it can be positive or negative. So we have self-image, we have role, and self can get thick around that. And I think a lot of us have something like that at different times. We can be thick around, I am, uh, you know, I am this occupation, I am that occupation, I am this ethnicity, I am that ethnicity, this gender, that gender. And there can be a, a certain way it gets big and thick. And um, in some ways, um, preoccupies us. You know, again, many stories I've heard from friends who may have been. You know, one friend I know was overweight as a teenager, and for ten years she says, "I am Sarah, the heavy one." And that was connected with a lot of suffering. Right? You can imagine, and there was a way that she, her self-image, took on that feature. Of course, other people didn't necessarily see her that way, but she did. So the social role can play a big. Can, the self can get thick. Another way that the self gets thick is, is uh, culturally and socially formed. You know, that we can have, in this culture, we have a very strong sense of individualism. And some of this is hard to get a sense of. You know, strong sense of, I am an individual. I have my own views. I do things my own way. I have my own car. You know, carpooling is socialist. You know. <laughs> or whatever, you know, and, uh, and that's very much like our cultural milieu, and there's a sense of self that's almost culturally and historically grounded. It's kind of hard to get away from, because it's, we know that when we go to another culture, right? Or we, you know, we may, we may be in multiple cultures here, and we go back and forth, so, oh, it's a little bit different self when I'm in this group. Oh, a little different self with that group, right? So it's very interesting. So we can see how self appears, and how it sometimes gets thick. We're, again, we're looking for a thick sense of self because there can be, there's something I learned from the Tibetan teacher, uh, Sokni Rinpoche. He said that in Tibetan tradition, there's, there's a um, phrase which translates as the mere I or the mere self, which is basically a sense of who I am, my role, what I do, but without any thickness without any, we might say, without any fixation. So there can be a sense of, yeah, I do this, I do that, I have this role, but is there grasping? Is there pushing away? You know, is there pushing away of the way my ears are or the way my feet are? That would be uh, a kind of reaction. Is there a grabbing hold of, I'm this, I'm a teacher, I'm you know, a man, and uh, taking it in a grasping way. What the Buddhist teaching is going to be pointing to is the way that self, the sense of self that's connected with this thicker sense rather than the mere I is connected with grasping or pushing away and it's typically connected with uh, conceptualization. I am this way. I am that way. You know, this is good. There's an evaluation. There's a conceptualization. You see where this quote is. This is from the teachings of the Buddha. In whatever way they conceive of self, the truth 
is ever other than that. And there's this link that we find between the sense of self and the uh, and conceptualization and concepts. Also from the Buddha. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one complicates with associations, memories, and ideas. And then these notions assail and overwhelm a person. So there's something about the sense of self which is connected with conceptualization. And this, we can study it. How much do I take myself as this or that? And we can watch whenever self-image becomes significant in a, at a party, at a gathering. And so part of the work with this teaching is simply to study how the self becomes thick. And you can also notice when the self is thin, when it's just, yeah, this is who I am. No reaction, no charge, this is just it. Because I think that's, according to that Tibetan teaching, that's really a direction. It's to see where is there some kind of reaction around that sense of self. Now another way, maybe the last thing I'll mention, where we find a sense of self that's been interesting to me is that we can have a sense of self where there has been some wound or some, um, some sense of um, difficulty in the past. In other words, we can have uh, past experiences in which there's been some difficulty or some pain, and that can almost in an unconscious way show itself as a thick sense of self. You know, if I, for example, as a child, let's say, was uh, criticized a lot, right? Let's say I had very critical parents, and I become, and that, in a sense, set up a wound. I, I become extremely sensitive to being judged, right? And that can appear almost unconsciously, as a thick sense of self. I don't want to do public speaking, right? I am nervous when I meet new people because I think they'll judge me, right? And so you can see there, there's a thick sense of self that's hardly conscious because we could say it's based almost on developmental wounds. And we all have a certain degree of that. We all have ways that we've had some wounding or some difficulty in the past that, uh, in a way, sometimes it's harder to get at because it's not always conscious. That person wouldn't necessarily uh, know why he or she didn't want to do public speaking or was nervous at parties, right? person wouldn't necessarily know that. If you live in Berkeley with 10 years of therapy, you would know that very well and you'd be the go to parties and talk about it. But... but (laughs) But for many others, it would still be relatively unconscious. And even those who talk about that, maybe there are other aspects that are harder to talk about. So you see, there are all these places where we can look at the self, where it gets thick. And I like that word thick because the problem isn't the self. It's when it gets thick to the point that it distorts things or it becomes the area where we suffer or limits ourselves. That's really the problem. And we can have that mere sense of self which can be go hand in hand with connecting, knowing who we are. So this teaching isn't about negating any sense of individuality. It's not about becoming a blob. So good news, right? Those of you who thought that you were on your way to becoming a blob, you're liberated (laughs) from that fate. Okay, so... There are all these different ways that we look, and we particularly, again, the teaching of the Buddha is particularly look to see how that thick sense of self is connected with uh, conceptualization, how there's some concept there, even if it's uh, maybe somewhat unconscious or in the past. could be the the concept and the belief, uh, every time I show myself, I will be judged. So it's beneath the surface in that way. That sometimes needs would need psychological work to bring it out. Uh, to see when there's conce- how there's conceptualization, the concept, this is who I am, and then to see how that's uh, at times connect with suffering. So we look at that. And then there's the uh, parallel or complementary part of our practice where we open up 
beyond that sense of thick self. And there are all these different ways that that can happen. Last time, I talked especially about how this happens in uh, ordinary experience or in experience that's not particularly about meditation. It can happen in all sorts of ways. And I want to just say a little bit about that and then come back to talk a little bit more about how it occurs in meditation. Uh, and I, I talked last time how there are these many experiences where we actually have a sense, no sense of thick self, but we don't always tune into it or recognize it. Some of these, I think, would just be when we're fully immersed in a task. You know, there may be little sense of self, no self-consciousness, just immersion doing the activity. Or it might be when we're with people we feel really comfortable with. And in a sense, there's no self-consciousness, there's not necessarily a self-image, or maybe not more, nothing added on. And there can be a sense of flow and openness and so forth. Again, it's relative. There's always going to be something beneath the surface that we're not quite seeing. But relatively speaking, there can be a lot of sense of flow and not much sense of self. And I also talked about how at certain further reaches of human development, uh, when we, for example, um, see uh, musicians at a high level of development or artists or people in sports, there can be such a full immersion in what they're doing that there's no sense of self. And it can be quite beautiful. And we find this when we look to the reports of musicians. You know, that think of a jazz musician is so fully in the music, if it's good, and there's not much sense of self. And again, if there is a sense of self, if the musician thinks, uh, that was a pretty cool riff. It's like the magic ends, Right? You know, same thing in sports. You know, you can be fully in the flow. The phrase in sports is called being in the zone, which means being beyond a sense of self. And this occurs all the time, right? Uh, You know, there was a very interesting time, I think it was uh, in the 90s, with uh, Michael Jordan, the basketball player, and he was in the zone, and he he hit like about six straight three-pointers. And then he looked over at the scoring table and went like this. Meaning, it's like it's not me. But at that moment, he became self-conscious and he missed his next shot. Interesting, right? I think you can see that. It's there in sports. Artists talk about creativity often as going beyond that thick sense of self and just opening themselves to the creative process. So there are these beautiful ways that we go beyond that limited sense of self. In meditation, we do so in a number of different ways. And the, uh, some of the ways that are most accessible are just to see, our, to be with our experience, with that kind of bare attention that we looked at uh, in, at the end of the meditation. And this corresponds to one of the core ways that the Buddha taught about uh, not-self, which was, he said, we can actually look at the, what he called the skandhas or the constituents of experience, which was a way of saying, let me just look at form. Let me just look at um, um, the feeling tone. Let me just look at perception. Let us just look at the different formations of mind. Let us look at consciousness. And we can actually stay with our experience and just look at the flow of what's happening. We would say sensations, thoughts, and we can just stay with those without bringing in a commentary, a fixation from the self, and we can just, as it were, stay with the flow of experience. That's one of the most accessible ways to experience not-self. In meditation, when we experience that for a long enough time, we have this very real sense of not-self. It can be quite transformative. If we st- and even transformative to experience for 15 minutes, right? When you experience it for 15 minutes, you say, wow, that's what they're talking about. You experience it for a day or a week, and you're convinced. You know, it can be quite, quite beautiful. And you can do that just with staying with uh, the flow of experience. And th- this is something you can do in every meditation. One good way to do it is just to not to try to do it for too long. Just do it for five minutes and say, I'm going to really stay with the flow. 
because the principle of learning and meditation is you start small and you just let it expand, let it get bigger. So start with five minutes and just stay with it. And it also it can give tremendous interest to our meditation, you know, to, to work with this. It really, this brings in uh, energy to really look. Oh, look at that. You know, look at, here's where my self-image, here's where I grasp, here's where I fixate. It can actually be very, very exciting to, to look at that. We can work with the uh, teaching of the elements, which we did in the movement with Heather, you know, just to see, let me just be with um, my experience as the water element, the earth element, the air element, the fire element, and just to stay with that and see and feel that. So it's a very traditional way. See, those of you know the teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness know that it's one of the ways that we meditate with the body. You know, it's not taught so much, but it's, it's a way to experience that sense of not-self. You know, and we can uh, also, as we uh, practice, we can open up uh, increasingly to other dimensions of uh, uh, beyond the sense of self. I, one, of, one of the ways that I practice, and part of what I did on this longer retreat, is I, do, I work with a sequence which goes all the way from the breath to a kind of pure awareness, sequentially. So we start with the breath, we stabilize, we open up then to just being mindfully with experience, and as that deepens, it goes more into that flow experience that I was talking about. As we work with that, we, start, we can start removing different aspects of self. We can move into what's sometimes called choiceless awareness, where we remove the intention to be with any particular object, which is part of what the self does. Part of what the self does is choose what to focus on because one of the interesting things about meditation is that uh, we actually need the self to meditate. We need the self, but not necessarily the fixated self, but the self that does this, that says, remember, Donald, meditate today. <laughs> you know, Or that has our timing on our schedule. When am I going to meditate? Or that's convinces us when we don't want to meditate to meditate. That's the self. So the self is not the enemy, really. It's the, the fixed self can be a problem, but the self that simply acts, that's ethical, that chooses what to do, that's uh, not a problem. Although ultimately, in the deeper reaches of meditation, we go beyond that. And so it's possible to have this sequence where we deepen and we move out of these thicker senses of self, to be with the flow of experience, to be increasingly with a kind of choiceless awareness, and then to move into a way of uh, being with experience in which that even that sense of division between meditator and the subject of meditation gets overcome. And there's more a sense of just presence, without fixing our mind anywhere. And I think this is what is pointed to in the teachings of the Buddha and in other teachings as the direction of our practice towards freedom and and liberation. So I'll, I'll invite any reflections or, or questions about uh, anything that was said, anything that was unsaid, and uh, about uh, practice, about anything. So we have a, a mic that we could use. I think that. Thank you. Could be a reflection. Could be a, a question. Sometimes it takes some time. There's a uh, Sharon over. Yeah. So, um, could you 
say a little bit more about the choiceless yeah. awareness because um, until, you know, if I'm sitting for a long retreat, after a while it seems like, you know, I get very present and still and, and that just happens. Yeah. But if you say choiceless awareness to me, it still feels like I'm choosing. So maybe it's just the wording. Yeah. It feels like I'm, you know, something, uh, a sensation comes up and I choose to put my attention there yeah. rather than on a thought or something. So yeah. if you could say a little more. Yeah, so a little bit more about uh, what is meant by choiceless awareness. And I think it's a phrase that was originally coined by Krishnamurti, as far as I know. But it's been used a lot for a long time by, I don't know, I think uh, Joseph Goldstein might have brought it in, um, probably from having read Krishnamurti, but I don't know for sure. But it, it, it's in a way, there, there are different variants of it because uh, the main technique that most of us use, which comes from Mahasi Sayadaw Burma, is a form of choiceless awareness in which we stabilize first with the breath and then we stay with the breath and when there's some degree of stability, we open our awareness to whatever is predominant. And we don't choose what's predominant, we go with what's predominant. And that is a kind of choiceless awareness, which is, again, I think it's the main form that most of us use. So it could be called choiceless awareness because it's uh, moving to what's predominant uh, rather than choosing to uh, focus on the breath or focus on body sensations or notice thoughts or do something else. So it's one form of practice. In some forms of practice, we want to focus on the body or focus on the breath. So the, uh, that's a broad sense of choiceless awareness, which I think probably most of us do uh, quite a bit of the time. And, uh, and then that, that instruction would be when we're not uh, when there's nothing that's predominant, we go back to the breath, right? Or when we don't, when we're confused or when we're overly distracted, we go back to the breath. And there's also a kind of choiceless awareness in which we uh, never go back to the breath. We just stay with whatever's there. That takes generally more concentration, right? Uh, because if we did that and didn't have enough stability of mind, we'd get lost pretty quickly. And so there's another form where we don't, where we just are totally with what's there. And as the mind gets more quiet, it sometimes experientially is felt as the rapid succession of many different kinds of experiences. You know, it can be a sensation, thought, and can be uh, very rapid. And it can actually be uh, uh, like the lived experience, which uh, uh, can say, oh, this, is, this feels like not-self. There's just sensation, thought, emotion, sensation, sensation here, sensation there, sound happening sometimes very quickly, and there's no one controlling that, that uh, process, and there's no one fixating on any part of the process. And so that kind of choiceless awareness is more, depends on a little more concentration, and that can be, uh, that can be very, very freeing to do that. And then, you know, there are, there, are also, there are a lot of ways you can work with that. Then it's very interesting to have that choice of awareness and then open your eyes <laughs> because the eyes are so connected with conceptualization, right? So it's more challenging at times. Can we, what happens when you open your eyes and you can notice, oh, my eye is fixing there. Oh, tree or cushion or something like that. And so that can be another way to work with choiceless awareness. First, to have it, you know, it's, this is where I like to work with a sequence, where you first stabilize with the breath, then you go into just the mindfulness. As that deepens, then you can open to that choiceless awareness where you don't go back to the breath, can really have that stabilize so things are happening quickly. And then you can explore opening the eyes, which is a lot more challenging. When I was first, I remember I was first doing that, I opened them for two or three minutes at a time, and it'd be all like, God, my, I'm just open the eyes and my mind just fixates on this, fixates on that, because that's what we've been doing for our whole lives, right? So it's very interesting. And, and then actually, when we do that choiceless awareness a lot, it's still focusing. There's still a kind of a self there 
tracking whatever's happening. It's very interesting. One of the gateways to pure awareness is when we go do choiceless awareness with eyes open, things are happening quickly, we're still tracking. It's like there's still, I'm still trying to track whatever comes before me. And then we let go of the intention to track and just rest in awareness. And that's one of the gateways to this kind of pure awareness, which is taken to be very close to really the sacred and to um, awakening. You're welcome. So I'm sorry that's... uh, there's a sequence there. I'd love to come back for the next 10 weeks and take us through the sequence, but maybe we'll, maybe in, in retreats, please. So how do you know when you're working with thick mind and mirror mind that you're not practicing immersion, aversion? How do you know when you're... How do you know that um, you're not practicing aversion mm-hmm. when you're um, working with thick mind and... Oh. With a thick self? Thick self, sorry. Yeah, that's a great question. So it's like how... When you're practicing and you notice a thick sense of self, like you might notice, oh, I'm really fixated on how I appeared at that job interview, let's say. Okay, very thick sense of self. And how do you, uh, how do you work? Basically, how do you work with aversion? Well, there might be aversion, and basically, you just track that. I mean, it's uh, simple in a way, but yeah, you want to notice. Is my meditation on a thick sense of self, um, is it based in aversion? So I'm using bad sense, bad thick sense of self, <clears throat> bad thick sense of self, <clears throat> bad thick sense of self. That's aversion, as if you needed to know. But, uh, and, but mostly we want to, yeah, we want to see whether we have a subtle or not so subtle um, rejection of that thick sense of... Because, again, the mindfulness is just tracking. It's just noticing. So some of it's going to be subtle and some of it's going to not be so subtle. Yeah. So if there's suffering and I associate, oh, thick self, yeah. I'm suffering, I'll quickly move over here to mirror self yeah. where it's more calm to no- just to notice that maybe it's aversion, maybe it's not. Yeah. Um, well... Uh, so a question about uh, if I'm trying to move away from the thick sense of self to a mere, um, to what Sultani Rinpoche calls a mere eye. Well, first of all, it's not so easy to do that. <laughs> uh, that the thick sense of self just doesn't um, uh, retreat without a little bit of a fight. <laughs> you know? And so um, if you can easily go to a mere sense of eye where you're just watching the flow, great. Yeah, and you do want to track to see how much aversion, but generally it's not so easy to do that. That you'll, uh, but yeah, you want to you want to notice if there's aversion in the process, and if you're grasping, you know, grasping after this mere sense of survival. So that's great. It's great to be sensitive to that issue. Fantastic. Uh, I'm just wondering, can you talk about the difference between the thick self and the ego? The difference between the thick self and the ego. It's uh, tricky uh, to answer that because the word ego is used in multiple ways in the West. I, I talked about that a little bit last time, just to say that there's a lot of confusion about that term. Um, most psychologists use the word ego a little more neutrally, not connoting self-centeredness or egocentricity. We sometimes, in Buddhist world, use uh, ego as something uh, bad, self-centered, egocentric. And so the word's used in multiple ways, and sometimes it's used very, very neutrally, um, so just as a, a, a qualification. So I think what you're really asking is how much is a thick sense of self connected with self-centeredness or egocentricity? And I think, uh, um, I think it is. You know, it's really what you're getting at, I think. I think it, there is a connection. But what's very interesting is that the, um, 
that sense of self doesn't have to be necessarily good. We can be self-centered and have very poor self-image. It's quite interesting. I remember uh, Trungpa Rinpoche had this great one-liner. He said, timidity is such an ego trip. Which you can see. So it doesn't have to be that ego means grandiosity or I'm great or look at me. It can be, it can, it also can be, don't look at me because I'm uh, not worthy of being looked at. can be negative. And that, that in a way is self-centered, but it's, you know, it's uh, not the way we usually use the word uh, ego, which usually, I think, tends to be used when it's used negatively, tends to be used for a positive sense of self, right? I think usually. So you can see there's a lot of confusion in the language. But I think generally the thick sense of self is connected with, um, with uh, sort of that conceptualization of the self which goes beyond raw experience, which is, I think, what you're pointing to. Yeah. Does that get at that? Yeah. yeah, thank you. Maybe time for one, maybe one more. Yeah, please. Um, thanks, Donald, for coming, and thanks for this talk. Um, this is sort of hard to be concise about because it's just a fresh experience. Um, let's say, theoretically, that you're dealing with an employer who um, you feel exploited by, or they broke a contract, and yeah. you still have to continue working there. And yeah. you feel very... Uh, you just feel negative. You just, you're judging them, and you're judging yourself for not sticking up for yourself, and yeah. then you're just convinced that you have to say something. And now I'm just sitting this after your words and wondering, is that shooting a second arrow just to even... Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because yeah. I, you know, for maybe 15 years, have a story of like, oh, I'm always exploited. So yeah. it's hard to see clarity right now. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. It's really about um, how in that situation where there's a difficult interaction, in this case, with an asymmetrical relation of power and uh, with, with a boss and maybe not being treated right. And how do I uh, respond without shooting the second arrow and maybe without developing a really thick sense of self? So not easy, right? You know, I, w- I would say in terms of working with self and not self, on a degree of difficulty of 10, that's getting near the 10. It's hard, in other words. In other words, we would practice initially with easier situations, right? Of course, you, if, if that's happening now, we, we don't have the uh, luxury of waiting, but we can really uh, practice the principle with easier situations. Okay? That being said, um, it's a great challenge to respond in those kind of difficult situations without shooting the second arrow, and without developing a really thick sense of self as I am the exploited. And we can look to people who've done that well. You know, for example, I think, again, I would interpret the traditions of nonviolence like King and Gandhi saying, how can we respond to injustice in a forceful way without shooting the second arrow? Right? That's exactly, I think, what their aim is, without being judgmental. You know, without, uh, while totally sticking up for what seems right. So, uh, how to do that uh, could be the subject of another talk, you know. Uh, But I think it's something that a lot of people are looking at. So, it would be, I mean, this is actually not not to, well, let me just say, one of the things that we look at when we do speech practice is how to speak in difficult circumstances. And this is something that's been very important for me. How to speak in difficult circumstances while keeping connected with mindfulness, not shooting the second arrow, a good heart, and be forceful, you know? So I, I've been very interested, you know, metta or loving kindness. I've been very interested in what could be called tough metta. Sort of like tough love, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know which, which is important because, you know, being... Cultivating metta doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't, and it, you know, one, how do you set boundaries, respond firmly, go against what's wrong, 
and yet not shoot the second arrow. Not easy. I think we practice with, you know, we, we, I think we learn a lot when we do that with easier situations. Don't start with the hard ones, but we have to bring them to the hard ones. That's a, that's a short answer. But I think it's basically to, a lot of what's been interesting, like in the discipline of nonviolent communication, people have worked out very skillful ways with language to respond forcefully, but without being judgmental, aggressive, putting other people on the defensive. Not easy, right? And part of it is being skillful with language. Part of it is working with your own reactivity. That's, so it's, there's an inner uh, part to practice, and then there's the outer way to be more skillful. So has to, I think when we're in the world of action, we have to combine that inner, uh, the inner work with our own stuff. You know, it's like just because we've uh, had wrong done to us doesn't mean everything we do is okay. Sometimes we think that, oh, I've been done wrong, therefore whatever goes, right? Sometimes activists think that. Right? You know, and there was a cartoon, I think I'll finish with this because we're, we're close to time. There's a cartoon uh, in which there was an epitaph on a gravestone that's, that said, he had the right of way. It's a, a cautionary tale when you have righteousness on your side. <laughs> okay. So more could be said, but uh, maybe that for now. So let's do a very brief close with loving kindness. Maybe first just to take a moment to say, is there an intention which comes out of this evening for my practice? could be related to self and not self, or it could be related to anything that came up tonight maybe not necessarily related to the theme, some direction of practice. And then we close by remembering that we practice not just for ourselves, but also very much for others. One way we express this is in our metta. So may we feel that radiating heart in ourselves, wishing well for ourselves. And then let that metta touch all the parts of yourself. And then let it radiate out from your heart, filling the room, wishing well for all of us. Building this space and then finally let it go out beyond the boundaries of this building, out into the world, wishing well for all beings, offering our lives and our practice for the benefit of all beings. Thank you for your very uh, kind attention and great questions and um, to be continued. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.